Well, it's good to be back in the pulpit with you this morning, and I'm looking forward to starting my 12-year series in the Minor Prophets, one year for each Minor Prophet. Uh, we'll get to Colossians 3.18, I promise, in 12 years. <laughs> you know, I think I'm the only guy in the world who's decided to deal with eschatology, covenant theology, and wives and husbands. <laughs> In the six-month time frame, if you look up the word crazy in the dictionary, my picture is underneath it. Well, the Lord is good, and here we are. Uh, we're back in the book of Colossians after a brief uh, hiatus and the wonderful passage in Matthew. Uh, I did that deliberately um, because I wanted to make certain that our focus remained on the work and person of Jesus Christ and that we understand the gospel and we understand the hope and the comfort that it brings to us that we are always able to rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ, His adequacy, His sufficiency, His perfectness, His acceptance by the Father, His, His communion with the Father are all things that are part and parcel of the glory and wonder of our salvation in Christ. And we always need to be reminded of that. Our tendency is by default to drift into that mode and pattern of thinking where we focus on what we are doing rather than what, on what He has done for us. Um, we're not faithing in our faithfulness, we're faithing in Jesus Christ, His finished work alone. And so I thought it would be important because we are dealing with these type of imperative passages in the book of Colossians to go back to that and to be reminded of who Jesus Christ is and the gracious invitation that he extends to us. And it's an invitation that is always open and it's one that we can always rest in and it's one that we always have to be mindful of. And so I hope that that was an encouragement to you. I enjoyed preaching through those passages there in Matthew chapter 11. Well, we're in Colossians chapter 3, and so what we're going to do is we're going to take some time over the next uh, several weeks to focus on these important imperative passages from the book of Colossians. Uh, I've decided to kind of co-opt a popular idea that we find in, in some writings today, not that I would agree with anything that he says, but uh, the idea of a gospel-driven marriage, a gospel-driven uh, uh, parenting and gospel-driven employment, um, because the drive behind Paul's message here is truly the gospel. Uh, we don't find any comfort or hope in our purpose. That's nothing more than works-based righteousness, but we find comfort and hope, and we do what we're called to do out of, out of wonder and awe and gratitude for what Christ has done, and so the gospel drives us in the context of these relationships, and we need to be attentive to that. Um, the basis and the predicate, as we will find today, is all in, in terms of what we've looked at in the preceding chapters, one and two in particular, and it gives the basis for why we move forward the way that we do here in this particular chapter. And I want to take the time, too, as we get into this passage to deal with issues that are facing the church and challenges that are unique to the church um, things that are being foisted upon the church in terms of egalitarianism and even some variations of complementarianism that I'm struggling with and looking at uh, where we are in Scripture on these important issues that face us as a church and even as a nation. The institution of marriage is under attack. Um, the order and creative design of God is under attack. Um, who we are as a people is under attack, and so we want to make certain that we understand what our King Jesus says to us about these important issues. 
uh, we have to be mindful of them. And so we'll take the time to do that, patiently working through them and perhaps having some good laughs and fun along the way. Lord, we love you. Thank you for this day that you've given to us. Thank you for your word. Help us to hear it. Help us to receive it. Give us patience and insight into these things so that we may glorify you and live for you in a manner that is pleasing to you and reflects the wonders of who you are. We trust that you would be pleased with our worship. We pray that you would bless us with the Holy Spirit, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, Morse code. That's, I think that was SOS, I don't know, but, uh, uh, you know, it was, uh, it's, you know, I, I, so funny story, I, for, for a long time, for a while as I was a kid, I wanted to get a ham radio, and so you had to take a test, and part of that test was to know the Morse code, and so I was practicing the Morse code, and you do this little thing where you do dit, dit, da, 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 dit, dit, da, and you do, you study, and you listen to this record and everything, and so one night, my dad asked me to pray, pray at dinner, and, and so I went, dit, dit, da, 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 dit, dit, dit. <laughs> yeah. He actually thought it was funny. I, you know, that was, it, was, it was a good thing. It could have gone one of two ways, you know, and uh, it was a good night. It wasn't a Wednesday, that's for sure. That's, uh, <laughs> so, uh, uh, but yeah, so... Um, a little Morse code humor there. I don't think you have to do that anymore for the ham radio test. I don't, I'm not sure, but it doesn't matter. So in any event, back to Colossians chapter 3. So let's go back, and I'm just going to preach the first two chapters again. <laughs> no, I won't. Let's go back to verse 12, and, and to lay the foundation to remind ourselves of what we have been taught thus far. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved. Now, I want you to remember something. This, what we are finding in verse 12, carries itself through into verses 18, 19, 20, and the balance of the chapter. We, we don't stop at verse 17 with the application of these types of virtues and principles. They carry over into the balance of the chapter and really serve as the foundation for why it is that we do what we do in the context of our relationships with each other and in marriage and with our children and in our employment. So he says in verse 12, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another that principle of forbearance and forgiving each other that principle of forgiveness Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. We so, so still need this in the church. Um, and this is an example, of course, to follow in relation to what Christ has done for us. That's Paul's point there in verse 13. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful." Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, 
Do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Well, so, here we are, finally to verse 18, and of course we have a lot of things that are going to be said about this passage, and one of the things I want you to do right out of the gate is I want you to to vanquish from your mind any caricatures or characterizations that the the world has associated with these particular passages, in particular verse 18. I will submit to you that for the most part, the church has bought into a lot of what the world has to say about this passage, about the relationship between a husband and a wife, and the idea of submission. Ultimately, the church has been feminized in the context of feminism in the modern sense of that term, and rather than seeing their relationship in the context of Scripture, we tend to view it from the secular perspective, which has diminished and altogether made it something that it was never intended to be. One of the things I also want to remind you of is this. I want you to be mindful of what we've already looked at in relationship to what Paul has taught us in the book of Colossians. You cannot isolate, you cannot separate the the balance of chapter 3 from all that has gone before. Paul is simply communicating to us a very important and profound truth, that is, the gospel plays itself out practically in terms of how we relate to each other. Paul goes back to the doctrine of election even, as we know in verse 12, and we've talked about that. And the reasons that we end up doing what we do and the reasons that we desire to do the things that are pleasing to the Lord is because of what He has done for us how He has brought us into salvation, how He has brought us into relationship with Himself, and for what purpose that was accomplished. And so, I want to make certain that in your mind, you're not analyzing and critiquing verse 18 and 19 and the following passages in the, through the eyes of the lens of the world. That is the tendency of, of what people tend to do. That's, that's the direction that people want to take. And, and it's it's, it's something that you have to check yourself with. And even in today's world, in the church, the modern evangelical church, there has been an eroding away of the principles that are associated with what Paul is communicating both here in Ephesians, we'll find it, I mean, in Colossians, we find it in Ephesians, we find it in Titus, we find it in Peter, um, we find it throughout Scripture. It, indeed, the basis for it goes back to the book of, book of Genesis, And so the foundation for the proper relationship between a husband and a wife is one that is ordered by Christ in the manner that he has deemed appropriate. To do otherwise is to go counter to Scripture, and to do otherwise is to reject what Christ has communicated to be what is perfect in his eyes with respect to the way a marriage ought to work and how that relationship ought to work. Now, I want to say a few things before we get into unpackaging some of the, the, the foundation. And that's what I really want to do today is to kind of go back and to lay the proper foundation, um, to make certain that we are understanding the, the proper 
means and manner by which these things are accomplished because we tend to forget those things. But importantly, what we're going to find out in these passages and as we unpackage these particular verses, and especially verse 18 and 19, just how important the family is to Christ. What an important foundation it is, and that foundation is predicated upon a proper view of marriage and the roles within marriage. These issues are under attack today. Marriage is under attack today. The family is under attack today. It's been diminished greatly, and it's been characterized to be something that it is not. And so what we find here is that in today's age, most people want the benefits of marriage, such as perhaps the intimacy, the companionship, the comfort of someone with whom to share their joys and sorrows and children to nurture and family to carry on their their estate and inheritances and things of that nature, but they do not want but they do not want what they consider to be the yoke, the restrictions, the commitment, and the duties that come with marriage done God's way. Now, now again, friends, we have to make certain that we're understanding something here. What Paul is going to be communicating to us and what we're going to see in other passages that attendant with a godly marriage are certain duties and obligations that God has ordained ought to be present within the marriage. Their absence indicates a problem, a sin problem. It's sin. And so we want to make certain that we are honoring Christ even in the context of this idea of marriage and how we relate to each other. Now, I will let you know, ladies, that that I have run a couple of things past Debbie this this past week, and last night I was reading something to her, and she kind of looked at me. So fear not. You you have an advocate in the pastor's home uh, who is gracious and kind beyond measure and who has your back. Um, So she looked at me, and I knew the look was like, you don't want to say it that way. (laughs) So uh, I may read it to you just so you can hear what I said, but nonetheless, I think it's pretty clever and pretty good stuff, but you know, I've been down that road before and it hasn't worked out either. So nonetheless, we want to make certain that we're seeing marriage. Now, here's the thing too, friends. I I want you to treasure what Christ treasures marriage has been ordained and instituted by God. It brings about stability, not only to the family unit, but to a nation. A nation that abhors the family, who seeks to destroy the family, is on a course to self-destruction. A nation cannot stand without the firm foundation of solid families which are predicated upon the right relationship between a husband and a wife. And we, as the redeemed of Christ, ought to be modeling for the world exactly what that looks like. In spite of their disparaging commentary, in spite of their disparaging caricatures, in spite of their guffaws and and calling us buffoons and idiots and other things, we stand as the redeemed of Christ, even in the context of our relationships with each other as husband and wife. Now, I will say this too. One of the things I want you to get into your mind as we move into this chapter and what or this section of the chapter and what you're going to see is that the primary relationship in the eyes of God is between the husband and the wife, not 
not the parents and the children, but the husband and the wife. That is the primary focus. That is the primary relationship. When the husband and the wife are right, the rest falls in place. If, if, your, if your children have co-opted your priorities in the context of your relationship with each other, if you as a wife or you as a husband are more concerned about the well-being and care of your children, then you are not acting within the confines or the context of a biblical marriage. Because your children have become idols and as a consequence have displaced the priorities that God has established within the family. And we're going to see this. The, the obligation of the children is to obey. The obligation of the parent is to make certain that they're doing it in a manner that's not heavy-handed. But the idea of the, the proper communion, the proper establishment within a harmonious home is to make certain, first and foremost, that mom and dad love each other and it's evident to the children. And that they're acting with each other in the confines and in the context of what Paul has defined as a proper relationship between both mom and, or husband and wife, mom and dad. If that's not modeled, there's going to be problems. And so I want to encourage you and I want to exhort you because oftentimes what has happened and oftentimes what we see is that the children become the priority and the husband and the wife become isolated and separated from each other because of that. That's not right. That's not biblical. Now, I'm not saying to you don't love your kids. I love my kids to death. I do anything in the world for them. But my primary obligation is to Debbie first to make certain that she is cared for, to make certain that she, her needs are being met, to make certain that I am caring for her and loving her in the same way that Christ has loved the church. That's what we're called to do. Now, I know our children can become all, altogether consuming, altogether overwhelming at times, both in terms of the obligations that are attendant with raising them and just the problems that they create which are many and myriad, like the plagues. <laughs> they never seem to end. Lord, again? Boy, they did what? <laughs> They're where? They're doing this? You've got to be kidding me. And we'll deal with that in the context of how we relate with our children. There's much to be said about that as well. But so, we look at this passage through the lens of Scripture, and we make certain then that our marriages then reflect this. What we want to make certain, too, is that we understand that the issue here is not one of diminished um, perspectives of a particular person, the woman here in particular in verse 18. This is not to be taken as, as demeaning in any way. The language is direct, as we will see. The language is very powerful. The language is unequivocal. The language is clear and precise. The issue is the application, not the understanding, as we will see. But I want to remind you of the fact of what Paul then says in verse 16 and verse 17 that precedes verse 18. They're powerful foundations for what is to come. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Oh, except for verse 18. Oh, except for verse 19. Oh, except for verse 20. Oh, except for verse 21. Oh, except for the balance of the chapter. No, let, again, I want you to think about this. Let's be mindful of this very fact. Verse 18 
are and contain the words of Christ. That is the direction. That is Scripture. Verse 19 is the same. The balance is the same. And so the idea of of 16 carries over and is extended into the application of this particular passage. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed. Now, we're going to find out that there are words and deeds that are attendant with submission as communicated in verse 18. There are words and deeds that are attendant with a husband loving his wife um, in, in the context of verse 19. And so in the in understanding that I want to be mindful of the fact that I am still within the confines, I'm still within the context, I'm still within the glorious gratitude of verse 17 when I move into verse 18 and 19. My happy attitude does not change when I get to verse 18. Do you have a happy attitude? I'm watching you. I'm looking at your faces right now. I'm I'm wondering if some of you are really happy right now. So whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Okay. So all of a sudden then, I have a baseline. I have a baseline for moving into verse 18. And so immediately, I have to move into verse 18 with that baseline attitude. I have to move into verse 19 with that baseline attitude. If I'm approaching these verses in any other way, I'm out of sync with Christ. I'm I'm moving in a direction that's contrary to him. Now, remember, from the beginning of time, the attack has always been on the marital relationship, has it not? Satan went to Eve and, and, and drove a wedge right between her and Adam. The split right there, it all begins. Now, of course, it's between God and all that too. I'm not going to get into all that right now, but nonetheless, importantly, the attack is immediately upon the union of the husband and the wife and their relationship with the Father. So we have to be mindful of the fact that one of Satan's primary tools is to destroy this, is to tear it asunder, is to divide it, is to divide it. So we understand then that, that when we look at these passages... When we see verse 18 and 19 and the following, that that to to the Lord, marriage is important. The nurturing of children is important. Loving each other is important. But we have to understand is that God is now telling us how to do marriage. Everybody says, you know, know, we get these phrases today, you know, uh, lean in. Can we just lean into this passage? You know, how are we going to do this? How How do you do that? You know, this nomenclature, this Matt Chandlerisms that you hear today so often. No, God is giving us direction as it relates to what is glorifying to Him. Remember, here at Community Bible Church, we're all about soli deo gloria, right? I mean, we love that. And so we, we want to make certain that even in the context of our marriage, that Christ is being exalted to God's glory alone. To God's glory alone. Well, we understand in the day's age that marriage is under attack. We have all sorts of things taking place that undermine what God has ordained. Marriage is opposed. Marriage is mischaracterized. Marriage is misdefined. The world opposes marriage as God has ordained it. 
and they look to make it into something different. They look to make it after their own image, do they not? I mean, isn't that the problem? They use it to give free reign to sinful desires. Let's make marriage something that God never intended so we can facilitate and accommodate our sinful desires, typically in a sexual nature. They give more authority to their own opinions, and they do that which is right in their own eyes. It's like in the book of Judges. In the context of marriage today. And of course, the attack on marriage um, is coupled with an attack from the culture too. We, we have t- attacks that are occurring within the church. We have a usurpation of the appropriate roles defined by God in, his, in Scripture about the relationships within the home, and culture does that too as it relates to the commitment and boundaries of marriage because they want to change that which they perceive to be a restraint on personal freedom, and they think we're all a bunch of killjoys. We're truly not. I mean, if you want to read some really great stuff about intimacy and marriage and the joys of marriage, the Puritans were quite good on this, but they're considered a bunch of duds, typically. But they weren't. And their view of marriage was significant. I have some fun quotes to read to you from the Puritans as it relates to marriage. We'll have some good laughs about that. But again, it helps us to see that what God has ordained is far better than what the world is ever going to offer you in terms of marriage. Indeed, the the world today regards marriage God's way as a miserable enterprise. We have people who say that God's way of marriage is out of date, culturally irrelevant, no longer applicable, and been corrupted into something that's nothing more than friends with benefits, people living together, which is becoming a problem within the church. People engage in open relationships, which is, again is becoming remarkably a problem within the church. Statistically, the presence of divorce, the presence of of, of living with each other outside the context of marriage. Um, this idea of friends with benefits is pervasive within the church as equally as it is within our own culture. The numbers are almost identical. How is this possible? What's going on? Well, the church has been corrupted. The church, in its never-ending efforts to compromise on these critical issues to make itself more appealing to the world, has jettisoned biblical marriage for the the corrupted worldview of marriage, and as a consequence, the church is no more pure than the world is, which is awful to say. Not only that, not only that problem, while many are jettisoning marriage and want to get beyond it, others are perverting marriage by redefining it as a union of people in even homosexual relationships. What you'll notice in in Colossians here is that clearly marriage is between a man and a woman. Well, what is a woman? It's an adult female. What is a man? An adult male. It's not hard to define. I can even define it. Maybe I should be on the Supreme Court. So we see that God has an order and a structure that the world is rejecting. But the church continues to buy into this. I see churches that are performing marriages for same-sex couples. How is that possible? How is that even appropriate in the context of anything that God has ordained? 
In that context, marriage continues to be destroyed, diminished, altered, and turned into something that God never intended. Many say that if we're going to have a mature society, then we should have the ability to alter and change marriage and to change the relationship between a man and a woman and to redefine all of these things in order to make ourselves more progressive, more hip, more modern, more fair, more non-discriminatory. That's the charge. So what you're going to hear most likely through the course of these series of sermons is, is going to be perhaps novel in some respects, but hopefully reaffirming in terms of what God has ordained as it relates to what appropriate marriages ought to be and what they look like. Importantly, marriage was the first human relationship instituted in the world and is therefore the fountain from which all others proceed. It's the very first thing. And its dissolution cannot occur without serious consequences for every other relationship in society. So our rush to legalize all sorts of bizarre relationships, people, women marrying trees, men marrying their pets, now with movements toward people being able to marry minors, changing definitions in order to make that which is openly, horrifically sinful, acceptable to us, marriage is clearly under attack. And so it's important for you as the redeemed of Christ to be salt and light in the context of the issue of marriage to be an example for your children, to be an example within your community, to be an example even within the church of what a godly marriage looks like. Now, does this mean that you're going to be perfect? No, of course not. We're not perfect. That's why we have Jesus Christ. He's perfect, so we look to Him when we fail, and He forgives us, and He carries us along, and He builds us up in righteousness. But at the same time, we strive to bring glory to His name and honor to His name by doing what is pleasing to Him, by doing what is pleasing to him, to do in word or deed, all in the name of the Lord, giving thanks for him to God the Father. And so we need to make certain that we're understanding that God has an ordered way of approaching the issue of marriage, and he expects you and I as his children, the ones that he has bought and paid for, to do it the way he has ordained. And to do it with gratitude and joyfulness and not heaviness of heart or buying into the caricatures of the world. To do so, ultimately then, is to have the wrong attitude and to reject what God has ordained. If you reject what He has ordained, what happens? Well, it's chaos. Well, look what Adam and Eve did. Did they not reject what God had ordained? How's that working out? That's <laughs> well, not. So, your first bullet point in your notes, if you want to have notes in that context, and I hope that you do because I think taking notes is helpful, especially so you guys can go home and in the cool of the evening sit upon your lounge chair embraced, arms around each other, and, and, and recite to yourselves the wonders of verse 18 and 19, <laughs> which I'm sure you will do. So, first we need to understand this. Believers should live out the new creational lifestyle in the family and workplace. Believers should live out the new creational lifestyle in the marriage, in the family, and the workplace. This is what Paul is saying, and this is it. This is new creation, right? So what does a new creation marriage look like? 
we are new creation in Christ Jesus. And so when I'm new creation in Christ Jesus, that means I'm doing things differently than the old creation would do him, right? I'm not going to do it that way. I'm going to do it in the new creation way. And that's very important. And so here we have this idea of a marriage that is Christocentric in its focus. The new creational lifestyle of love. Now think about this. What do we have laying before us in the context of what Paul has been talking about? We have the new creational lifestyle of love and unity and peace and a focus on Christ. And this must especially be lived out in the family and the workplace. It only makes sense. We don't, like I said, we don't get to verse 18 and stop the application. All that has gone before, all that we have talked about in chapter 1 and chapter 2, the whole work and person of Jesus Christ, the gospel, the importance of understanding who we are in Christ. We were dead in our sins, and He made us alive together with Christ Jesus. He has canceled the certificate of debt. We stand in him complete. In chapter 3, I'm putting on this new self. I'm being robed in this righteousness, clothed in this newness. The consequences of which is I'm going to relate to people differently than I would have before. And in particular, in the context of my marriage. One of the things that's significant about this too is that we don't approach this from the standpoint of what do I get out of it. How, how is this going to benefit me? Is my wife going to be nicer to me now because of the pastor's messages on 318? Is my husband going to be less heavy-handed? I hope, I hope, but ultimately the objective ought to be to be glorifying Christ in your relationship. I'm going to say, what happens, ladies? What happens if you do all this and your husband doesn't do verse 19? Do you stop doing verse 18? Is verse 18 predicated upon verse 19? Uh Uh-uh. It's predicated upon what? Your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ only. Only. And we'll talk more about that, and there's much to be said about it in terms of, of how that plays out. So, what we know is this then. As we get into verse chapter 18, or verse verse 18 of chapter 3, we know from our study of Colossians that the new creation was inaugurated by Christ's death and resurrection. We go back and we find that in chapter 1, in particular verses 15 through 20, we see these things playing out. And those who are in Christ then participate in that newness of life, in that regeneration. We are the new creation. We are identified with Christ in that context. Remember, one of the main themes of the book of Colossians is what? Our union with Christ. That union carries over into our relationships with each other, in particular in our marriage. You've died to the old world. You've been placed into the new world. You now have the power to say no to sin. We know this from looking at chapter 3, verses 5 through 9. And we have now the ability to live according to the pattern of the resurrected Christ in the new creation, which is the point of verses 12 through 14 those virtues that have been listed out. So don't forget that. Don't forget that 18 is tied back in, 18 and 19 are tied all back in to what we've been looking at, all the particular ideas, all the wonders of of what the Lord has done for us, 
how it is that I can now live a life that is pleasing to him because I want to and because he has equipped me to do that. A life that reflects who, that, that Jesus Christ is real to me. This is played out with the presence of the virtues that are identified in verses 12 and 13 and 14. And so, please don't forget that. So the new creational life, and keep that in mind, that's a phrase that I want you to keep in the forefront of your mind as we are looking at these particular passages, the new creational life, which is portrayed in verses 12 through 16, which consists of what? Love, unity, peace, adherence to Christ's word, and is summarized in verse 17, doing everything in Christ's name, is now, is now focused in on and how that is to be lived out in everyday life, and in particular in a marriage, in the family, and in the workplace, as we see in verses 18 through verse 1 of chapter 4. This tripartite family structure, marriage, parent-children, and master-slave, to a large extent, covered the relationships in which Christians find themselves and found themselves then. This is not new and novel. It's interesting that Paul could write a letter some 2,000 years ago, and he covers the dynamics of relationships that are present today. They're exactly the same. They didn't have anything uniquely different from us in the context of these issues. So, for us, that's something to keep in mind. And so, what we find here then is that the instructions for the family in this section are a depiction of how the family is to be transformed in its new creational sphere. So, friends, you live within this new creational sphere. You are not of the world. Indeed, Peter says that we're sojourners, we're pilgrims, we're aliens, we're aliens, we're foreigners. And so we're not attached to the world in that way. We live in a new sphere. I mean, you're bubble people in a way, kind of living in this new Christian bubble in the context of, of, of being separated and set apart. So don't forget that. The reason I'm emphasizing this is because of how much struggle there has been over the ages and in recent past history of the church with these particular passages, and in particular verse 18. And verse 19 too, I don't think pastors have often spoken well enough about the husband's love for, for his wife and how he ought to love her, and how he ought to cherish her, and what that means in the context of the proper relationship. That's been diminished, I think, in many respects. But this issue of verse 18 has been particularly chiding for many because of the nature of what it calls for. But we know this. We have seen in Colossians that Christ's reconciliation and peacemaking on earth and in heaven are one of the main expressions of Christ's inauguration of the new creation. He's a peacemaker. He's reigning and ruling in that context. And, and so we too do that in our relationships. Those who have been reconciled and affected by Christ's peace have done what? Well, we have, been, we have clothed ourselves with a new man who is being renewed unto the knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. In verse 10 of chapter 3. Such people are what? One body in Christ, verse 11 and verse 15. People who have experienced the new creational reconciliation and peace will show reconciliation and peace to one another, verses 12 and 15. For example, we forgive as Christ forgave, verse 13, 
and they let Christ's peace rule among them, verse 15. And so the family, the main social unit of society, is the place where Paul believes such new creational reconciliation and peace should be exhibited by those who have become part of this new creation. So, again, you don't get to separate out all the things that we've studied from this particular passage. You don't get to come back and say, well, pastor, in the context of marriage, these principles, these secular principles are the ones that really ought to govern. You know, there's a lot of nuances today. There's a lot of new things that we're dealing with. There's a lot of issues. There's a lot of new perspectives about relationships and how men think and men are from Mars and women are from Venus. And so we have to take all that into consideration before we can unpackage this. No, we go to God's Word. We look at His Word and we use His Word to serve as the foundation for how it is that we then move forward in these relationships. So, what are we going to do with verse 18? Well, verse 18 is going to have to be understood within the context of what the words mean. Words have meaning. So, so again, friends, I don't want you to forget this. Everything that we've looked at moves me then into how I'm going to act with respect and understand verse 18. So, ladies, this passage is written to you. We know that right out of the gate, and I have no problem defining the word. Wives. There you go. Right out of the gate. You want a special word? You want God to speak to you directly? Well, there you have it. Verse 18. He does it. And, and, and it's, it's kind of emphasized in a way. It's right there at the beginning. Wives, comma, you got to pause for a minute. you got to think about it. So we understand that Paul then is writing directly to these women in the church who are married and have a relationship in the context of marriage with a man. They have a husband. And so that is the context all of a sudden. So now I'm dealing with a relational issue. I'm dealing with the fact that there are two people who have been brought together according to God's good providence and will and in the context of marriage, there's this dynamic, there's this relationship, and from it flows certain duties and obligations. Now, when I use the word duties and obligations, I don't mean them to be taken in a begrudging way. We've talked about the things that are attendant with the imperatives of Scripture. We've talked about the indicatives. We've talked about why we do things because of what Christ has done for us. And these imperatives then give us direction as to how to live out the reality of all of that. One of those ways for a woman and a marriage is to do what Paul directs here in verse 18. So what we see then is this. Paul directs this message in particularly directly at women who are married. Paul begins with wives. And this word can refer to women generally, but here it seems to mark off wives specifically. Um, and indeed, even the context of the grammatical structure um, in regards to the use of a particular definite article, designates the wives as a distinct grouping under present consideration. So this is specifically, and th for those of you here who are ladies who are not yet wives, uh, a wife, then um, you can learn that this is what your marriage ought to look like and what your relationship with your husband ought to look like. So you, you're getting some free counseling today. Well, it's always free, but nonetheless... You know what I mean. So pay attention, young ladies, 
And I mean young ladies all the way down to the young, the young ladies here. You, you need to hear these words because the world is teaching you something different. The world is modeling something different. So you need to hear what God has to say about what you are going to be doing in terms of a relationship with your husband. Now, one of the things I want to note as well is that it's significant that um, this, this matter of compliance uh, with this particular Christian duty is connected by Paul with the idea of doing it as something that is pleasing to the Lord. We'll see in particular that there is frequent reference. In fact, there's more reference here to it than any other part of the, of the, of the epistle. Paul says in verse 18 that we're doing this in the Lord. Verse 20, well, pleasing to the Lord. Verse 22, fearing the Lord. Verse 23, as for the Lord. Verse 24, from the Lord you will receive the reward. Verse 24, is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Verse 1, you too have a master in heaven. So it's interesting to me that all of a sudden Paul is beginning to make these significant connections with respect to what we're doing as an act that is reflective of the fact that you are under the authority of a Lord and Master, something that is pleasing to him. Remember, you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. You've been purchased with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So you're not your own person. Is that, that's important. You are not your own person. You belong to somebody, and, and, and that somebody who is Jesus Christ is telling you, ladies, and I don't mean this in a harsh way, but he's giving you instruction as to what to do in a marriage and how to do it in a manner that is pleasing to him. And is, it, is, it is something that would give him glory. So, keep that in mind. So Paul begins with the issue of the wife right out of the gate. Um, and, and we can talk more about the grammar, how there's this particular emphasis in the context of that grammar to, to truly make it pop, if you will. So what do we know? What do we know about wives? What does Paul say to the wives to whom he is writing in the church in Colossae? Well, they're to be subject. That's what he says. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Well, there you go. That's a mouthful, but it's an important mouthful, and it's one that we need to really chew on and to make certain that we're understanding. So, what does this word mean? The idea of being subject to. Well, it's interesting that the verb that's used here by Paul in the Greek is a compound word which arises from the Greek word for under and the Greek words for appoint or to order. So it speaks to authority and submission. Authority and submission. Importantly and interestingly enough, too, it's a military word which described the ranks of soldiers arranging themselves under the leadership of their commander. That's how it would be typically used in the Greek, in the Greek language. It's also interesting as to what voice this word occurs in. Um, it, it's possible that it could have a, a if, it's, if it's passive, which many believe it is, that it has a reflexive sense to it. 
that is the automatic response of a believing wife to her husband is to be in submission to him. It is part and parcel. It is attendant with an attitude that is connected with who she is in Jesus Christ. Her immediate response to her husband is one of submission. That's, that's the idea in the grammatical emphasis of the structure. That's, that's certainly contrary to what the world holds to. And so, in either case, whether you say it's in the middle voice or the passive voice, if you want to get into the weeds about that, either way, it's either reflexive or it shows that it's a voluntary and personal choice of the wife. So, husbands, you can't beat submission out of your wife, nor should you want to. You can't demand it out of them. You can't force it. The idea of submission is not someone who is, is cowering, cowering in, in response to authority, some kind of a fearful, abject terror of a person. But no, this is a loving response based upon that woman's relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ to her husband, believing or unbelieving. Yeah. Believing or unbelieving. This isn't just something a Christian woman does for her believing husband. It's in both contexts. We find this in 1 Peter chapter 3, do we not? Peter encourages a woman who is married to someone who is not a believer to live her life out in a manner that is glorifying to Christ and in such a way that God may use it to save the man. And so, importantly, ladies, I want you to think about this. In the context of your spiritual DNA, remember your new creation in Christ Jesus. According to the preceding passages in chapter, verses in chapter 3, you have been clothed in a newness. We use that tailoring language, that putting on. So the idea is that you have been, you have been genetically altered in the context of your salvation, and a consequence of that is to have in your mind an attitude that is contrary to what the world says and even contrary to your fallen nature. And so, Paul here, by the grammatical structure through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says to the ladies that it ought to be something that is reflexive and also voluntary and personal. So the idea here in the present tense that's used by Paul reveals that the wife is to choose this as an abiding attitude, not simply when such feelings may arise. How are you feeling today, honey? I'm feeling pretty submissive. How are you feeling today, honey? I don't feel submissive. So such submission is to be the ongoing pattern of a wife's relationship to her husband. The pattern. Now, uh, granted, it doesn't always work that way. There are times when it doesn't play out the way that God ordains. That's the way it is in life. And we have a Savior who forgives us, and we can go to Him and confess our sin because that's a sin. Ladies, when you act outside of the context of this dynamic that God has ordained, that's sin. That's, that's a violation of what God has ordained. It's missing the mark. It's not living your life in a manner that is, that, is, that is holy, and so it's off the mark and something that would, you would need to get right with the Lord over. Now, 
This submission is to be the ongoing pattern. And again, I'm not trying to be heavy-handed. I'm just explaining the words to you. But I do think it's important to understand the meaning of the words because the world has changed this. The world has altered the relationship between the husband and the wife and has changed things. And indeed, we have this whole new idea and attitude that we're going to cover later by a misinterpretation of Ephesians 5.21, where they try to get around the idea of submission by making it an issue of equal submission. And and we'll have to deal with that because there's a movement amongst evangelicals today to, to get away from what Paul is saying here in Colossians and other passages in Scripture in order to make this more palatable to a modern woman. Well, a modern woman is more educated, of course, they say. A modern woman is more in tune with her desires and felt needs and the issues of society as it relates to the relationship between men and women. And so we must change the way the church communicates what the Word of God says about this issue because it's just arcane. This cannot possibly be. How on earth are we supposed to do this? You expect me to build a church by preaching on Colossians 3.18? Well, Paul is structuring this church. He's instructing, he's, he's giving them instruction. He wants their marriages to reflect that which God has ordained, and it's important that this be dealt with, and so he is. And so such submission is to be the ongoing pattern of a wife's relationship to her husband. And of course, the imperative mood makes it obligatory, and that's what the mood is. She is willing, willingly to obey this injunction of God. And this idea of submission is found throughout Scripture. It's both part and parcel of this relationship in the context of men and women, but also in the context of our relationships with each other in other dynamics and settings. All people are subject to governing authorities, Romans 13, 1 through 5, Titus 3, 1. Believers are subject to one another, Ephesians 5, 21. Children are subject to their parents, Luke 2, 51. Slaves are subject to their masters, Titus 2, 9. The church is subject to Christ, Ephesians 5, 24. All things are subject to Christ, 1 Corinthians 15, 27 through 28, Ephesians 1, 22, Philippians 3, 21. No one is exempt from submission to authority. In this case, the submission is of the wives to their husbands. And that's what he means. And here the word husband is the idea of a male. And we know what a male is. And so the idea of, this, of the relationship between a man and a woman in marriage is, is attendant with the idea of the submission of the wife to the husband. So, we're going to leave it there, and next Sunday, we're going to talk a bit about then what does that look like? How does the wife do that? And are there limitations to the submission of the wife? I will tell you now that there are, and I'll just tell you that the the limitations are when the husband demands of the wife that which is contrary and outside the scope of God's Word. Um, and, And we'll talk more about that and what that means. But again, Again, as I said at the very beginning, and it's interesting how the room got a little bit quieter, there's an edge to this, and and it's interesting that oftentimes the reaction is to kind of get your back up a little bit, not that I'm saying that you have, but I want you to resist that. That's where Satan wants you to go. 
That's where Satan wants people to be when it comes to these issues, whether it be in the context of the other issues of submission that we spoke of, or in particular, this one. So get out of your mind the caricatures that have been attached to this by the world and view it from the glorious perspective of Christ. And it just gets better because you're going to find out that your husband then is to love you in a manner that is reflective of how Christ loves the church. And that's going to change the dynamics. And that certainly plays into how then this takes place in the context of this relationship between a husband and a wife. God's Word is good. All of His Word is profitable. All of it's good for correction and instruction, building up in the faith. And I trust that's taken place today. And I hope that, that we'll, as we move through this, your relationship with your husband or your wife will be strengthened and equipped and more glorifying to Christ as you do that which is pleasing to Him first and foremost. Um, and so be patient, and we'll work through this and be encouraged. The Lord is at work. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Thank you for this passage. Thank you for this time and your word today. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand your purpose and your plan for us, that it's always perfect, that it's always good, that it's always to our benefit, that you would never do anything to us, Lord, that would cause us any harm or diminish us in any way, in an in a, in a improper manner. You would not give us um, anything that would be uh, demeaning or hard or harsh in this way. You're a loving Father. You're gracious to us. And so, help us to receive these instructions in the manner in which they're intended. Help us to understand their meaning, and help us to live in a manner that is glorifying to you. And help us to remember that you have graciously given to us a Savior, that when we fail in these areas, when we don't love as we ought to, and when we don't submit as we ought to, that you graciously forgive us in Christ who was always loving, who always acted in submission to the Father, who was always um, prepared to surrender His will to that of the Father. We rejoice, Lord, that we are known by You, and we rejoice that You've given us these words of instruction to build us up in the faith and to help, help us to live peaceful and joyful lives in Christ. Help us to be encouraged and equipped to do that which pleases You, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you.